Good afternoon, and welcome to Terratech's fiscal third quarter of 2018 financial results conference call. Replay of this call will be available at www.smallcapvoice.com. It will be archived on the investor relations section of the Terratech website. Before we begin, please let me remind you that during the course of this conference call, Terratech's management may make forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements are based on current expectations that are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. These risks are outlined in the risk factors section of our SEC filings. Any forward-looking statements should be considered in light of these factors. Please also note as a safe harbor, any outlook we present is as of today. Management does not undertake any obligation to revise any forward-looking statements in the future. With me on the call today are Mr. Derek Peterson, Terratech's Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, and Mr. Mike James, Chief Financial Officer. With that, I would now like to hand it over to Derek Peterson. Derek, please go ahead. Hey, Phil, thank you very much for the introduction, and everybody, thank you today for joining us for Terratech's third quarter 2018 results. At the same time, we're going to provide an operational and business update today on the call. Obviously, a large focus of this call is going to be the announcement we made earlier in the week that we have signed a non-binding letter of intent to combine forces with Golden Leaf. So today I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what we've got looking at from an M&A growth opportunity standpoint, what we've, why we've chosen to kind of combine with Golden Leaf at this juncture, the structure of the transaction a little bit, and the impacts that we think it's going to have from a synergistic standpoint for shareholders on a go-forward basis. After we've covered that, I'll recap our achievements for the quarter, hand things over to Mike James, as usual, for a deeper, deeper dive into the financial results. Uh, but I'd like to start off, you know, coming fresh out of uh, midterm election cycle and, and talk a little bit about the broader macro pol- political situation in the U.S. As many of you know, we've had a few more states uh, pass some semblance of regulation, whether it was adult use or medical in the United States. But even more pivotal than that is everybody's probably heard Jeff Sessions uh, has resigned as Attorney General. Obviously, he's been a bit of an impediment, to, to put it mildly, for the cannabis industry and, and, and our ability to grow. But the one thing that he's always been correct on is that lawmakers in Congress ultimately need to change the laws to reflect the changing sentiment of the voters in the country. And again, we are certainly seeing a changing of sentiments as far as cannabis legalization is concerned. Um, more importantly, what we're hearing you know, internally from our side and our relationships and our federal lobbying efforts is we will likely see some movement of Cory Gardner's states' rights bill as it pertains to adult use uh, in multiple jurisdictions in the country. So we're hoping that this is the beginning of the dominoes tipping over in our favor and to start to see some semblance of federal initiative or federal changing in terms of their stance as far as laws are concerned. I think a big, a big uh, pathway that opened up for us, in addition to Jeff Sessions resigning, is Pete Sessions, who headed up the Rules Committee, as many of you know, has blocked several votes, several bills, uh, as it pertains to cannabis across a pretty broad spectrum. He's lost his seat, and we have a more favorable candidate in his position now. So we might have the ability to start seeing more and more bills as they pertain to regulation around cannabis in all areas start to make their way to the floor for votes. Uh, but back to the Golden Leaf transaction. As we announced earlier in the week, we signed a non-binding letter of intent to combine uh, forces with Golden Leaf. Golden Leaf primarily uh, is, a, is an Oregon-based uh, vertically integrated operator. Uh, I want to talk about kind of our reasoning behind this larger M&A transaction. As everybody's seen, we're seeing a lot of consolidation up in the Canadian markets. Uh, we're starting to see some consolidation in the U.S. markets. And what we're really seeing is, a, you know, companies are being rewarded for a land grab in terms of grabbing permits in multiple jurisdictions out there in the marketplace. So competitive land grab for permits is important. I've said several times on past calls that market penetration, specifically around branding, is extremely important as 
the industry begins to commoditize or in certain jurisdictions when the flour tends to commoditize, which we've seen in certain markets around the U.S. that didn't put caps on cultivation and manufacturing permits. Branding is really going to be that, that factor that separates the, the, the traditional, like I said, uh, you know, marginal growers from the branded growers. So we want to make sure that our products that we push out have great brand integrity, great consistency, and that's really going to be the cornerstone of, of both companies. And as we integrate and combine forces, we're going to put a tremendous amount of emphasis on additional branded wholesale products out into the marketplace. They have a lot of core competencies and products we don't create and vice versa. So there's some great synergies around that. Size and scale is obviously very important, which is why we wanted to look to do a larger consolidation out of the gate to get some size and scope. This gives us over about 41 licenses on the West Coast, puts us in a very dominant position in this jurisdiction out in, in the West Coast covering Oregon, Nevada, California. And we've got multiple applications, as you've read in the prior press release, for new jurisdictions in the U.S. as well. Um, so why are we merging with Golden Leaf specifically? Again, they're vertically integrated from, from the same standpoint that we are seed to sale, cultivation, manufacturing, as well as retail. They have a very similar business strategy that we have from a cultural standpoint. That's one of the biggest risks when looking at potential acquisitions out there, especially ones on a larger scale. If we go out and buy a mom-and-pop dispensary, it's pretty easy to change the culture over a period of time. But when we integrate a larger organization that has systems in place, back office in place, marketing teams, branding teams, compliance teams, it's really important that those pieces fit together very well because if those pieces don't fit together very well, ultimately this, the infrastructure can collapse on itself. So we put a tremendous amount of energy as we've been out there talking to potential partners in the industry of who's going to make kind of the best synergistic and cultural partner for us from an internal standpoint. And we felt an extremely good fit uh, with the Golden Leaf team. William, who's the CEO over there, and I see things very eye-to-eye of where the business is going from a medicinal standpoint, from an adult use standpoint, how we ultimately need to be positioned for that, and the fact that we think the West Coast is going to be one of the most powerful markets in the U.S. and why we're focusing on dominating and penetrating that marketplace with our wholesale brands as well as our retail brands. So we were very aligned from a strategy standpoint and extremely aligned from a cultural standpoint. They brought size and scale along with our size and scale out of the gate. And in addition to that, huge footprint expansion, the ability to have opportunities with international uh, exposure for our brands to their Canadian uh, division in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, Golden Leafs overview, their primary market, the primary art market is Oregon. They have eight retail stores there, seven of which operate under the Chalice Farms brand. They also operate indoor and outdoor cultivation and production facilities. They develop a lot of wholesale products for Oregon's medical and adult use markets. Their product portfolio is pretty diverse. They have a lot of high-quality cannabis products, great flower strains. They've won a tremendous amount of awards on that. Um, they've got a lot of compliments to our existing wholesale product lineups. They've got everything from infused fruit chews to tinctures, a lot of things that we don't do. We, don't, we haven't gone into the edibles realm yet. They're starting to push down that corridor, which is, again, a great compliment for us as well. In addition to that, they've got uh, their wholesale products rolling out to the Nevada marketplace, and as we have you know, good retail presence there, and our wholesale manufacturing divisions and cultivation are already online, and our manufacturing facilities we'll discuss a little bit later on in the call is also coming online here shortly. That's a great compliment to our Nevada footprint out of the gate as well. In addition, they've signed a definitive agreement to acquire Tahoe Hydroponics. That should be closing shortly, and that will become part of the integrated entity at the end of the day when we close, hopefully, in the first part of next year. Uh, that's a great compliment to our retail brands. Tahoe Hydroponics is one of the premier 
uh, flower producers and product producers in the Nevada marketplace. Great brand recognition and, a great, and again, a great complement to our retail footprint as well as our wholesale footprint in that marketplace. Uh, as I said just a second ago, they've got a Canadian LP as well that that transaction is expected to help Terratech Internet enter international cannabis markets through their cultivation and production operations in Ontario, Canada. Golden Leaf also operates a medical cannabis consulting company that secures high-value medical cannabis patients and educates and refers them to licensed producers for their particular products in the Canadian marketplace. So Terratech is ultimately planning to leverage these operations to enable its wholesale branded products to enter the Canadian markets. Furthermore, in addition to that, establishing that foothold in Canada is also expected to provide a platform for the company to export our combined brands to global markets, providing new distribution channels to support revenue growth. What we're seeing out there from a global standpoint in multiple markets throughout Europe and Spain and, and that type of, those types of areas is there's becoming a significant demand for U.S. brands. People are looking at Northern California specifically in the Emerald Triangle, kind of the Napa Valley of cannabis. And again, there's a huge demand, a significant demand for those types of genetics and brands to be pushed through the European marketplaces. And we have now with this combination a mechanism to be able to produce our brands in that area and then export those out from a global standpoint to start to continue to garner global brand recognition. The transaction structure as well, as a reminder, it is a non-binding letter of intent. We have a tremendous amount of closing conditions in terms of due diligence, uh, regulatory approvals, permit transfers, and those types of things that we need to accomplish. So our management teams are going to be very busy over the next few months working our way through these processes. But under the terms of the letter of intent, a wholly owned subsidiary of Terratech is going to merge with Golden Leaf, resulting in combined corporation being a wholly owned subsidiary of Terratech. Golden Leaf will receive 0.1203 common shares of Terratech for each common share of Golden Leaf held. And as a condition of the closing, Terratech will be required to list its shares on the CSE. The listing, of course, will be subject to satisfying all of CSE's requirements. I'll remain in my position as CEO. William Simpson, who's the current C CEO of Golden Leaf, uh, will become the president of the combined company. The combined company will benefit from multiple operational synergies, such as economies of scale, improved purchasing power, as well as other advantages across accounting, legal, HR, and other company functions that come from operating at scale. We're going to provide increased liquidity and enhanced overall capital markets profile with the combined company. I would look towards seeing a larger corporate rebranding at the time of closing as well, freshening up the story to investors, making sure that they understand what our global strategy looks like on a go-forward basis, and the fact that we want to leverage our footprint and our significant footprint on the West Coast to continue to develop our retail brands as well as our wholesale brands on the West Coast. Let's jump into our organic uh, growth initiatives from the quarter for Q3 2018. During the third quarter of 2018, we implemented several strategic initiatives intended to drive long-term growth and build value for shareholders. We had some challenges during Q3 that were a bit of an anomaly, and we can discuss those a little bit later in the call as well, but the primary challenges and why the quarter was a little bit soft from a revenue standpoint is we had a major shift, as many of you know, this year in California with the adoption of regulation. California has been legal from a medical standpoint for 20 years. It was quasi-recreational. Most people, you know, give it that kind of connotation because it was very easy to obtain a medical uh, prescription for, for cannabis in the state. And we went from a very unregulated market to a very heavily regulated market, and that heavy regulation is coming a burden for most operators here. We have significant taxes, which has made us not super competitive against the black market and gray market providers. The state at this juncture hasn't put a significant amount of effort and energy 
into shutting down the gray and black market operations that are ultimately selling product without all the excise and gross receipt taxes that we have to pay as a licensed producer. So the competition with the gray and black markets has been a tremendous challenge, and it's starting to get better. We're starting to see enforcement letters going out at this juncture, but we hope that next year they add fuel to that fire and begin a more aggressive approach at shutting down these establishments that are essentially robbing taxpayers of the tax dollars that are, that are associated with regulation. In addition to that, July 1st, the state made all companies that were licensed and regulated operators destroy any remaining product they had left, call it legacy product, that didn't meet the current testing and regulatory parameters. So as we went into Q3, we had to bargain sale many, many products, and we had to write down some of that inventory and destroy some of that inventory, which had a little bit of a hit to gross margin. So between the heavy regulation, the black and gray market competition, the increase in prices because the excise tax and the gross receipt taxes, coupled with having to migrate all that product out the door. Q3 was a bit of an anomaly. It had some, un, you know, kind of untraditional un, uh, headwinds that we had to face that we worked our way through. Q4, we'll have the remnants of that a little bit as, as we look forward to Q4. But I think as we approach 2019, hitting on all cylinders, we're going to be back in a situation where uh, we don't have as many of these hurdles and many of these headwinds. We've had a new governor in California, Gavin Newsom, was elected. He's very friendly to cannabis, as many of you know. He's also very friendly to small business, and I should see some semblance of reduction in some of these regulations that are cumbersome and provide too many headwinds to the industry. In addition to that, during Q3, one of the biggest reasons we were a little light on the revenue side of the equation is we shut down our manufacturing facility in Northern California, and we had to rebuild our cultivation facilities to bring everything up to code for the new regulations. So we basically had to shut down cultivation, shut down extraction. We'll be ramping these back up in Q4 and Q1 of next year. So for Q3, in, essentially, we were operating as a pure play retailer without the wholesale initiative backing up the revenue uh, multiples. And we figured this was a good time to be able to accomplish that because a lot of people are having a challenging time in the marketplace. There were a tremendous amount of wholesale providers that weren't able to get licensed that still aren't able to get licensed. Our shelves were a little bit bare in Q2 and then pouring over into Q3 as well because, again, a lot of the traditional people that we did business with in the past weren't licensed under the current regulatory scheme and weren't able to sell products to our retail dispensaries. So there were a lot of challenges across the board, but that was the primary reason why Q3 was a bit of an anomaly from that standpoint. Again, Q4 will have some remnants of that, but coming out of Q4, we should see ourselves in 2019 with a little bit more smooth sailing and probably see some nice upticks in the adult use market in California. Uh, Oakland, as you know, for some of the new shareholders and investors that are on the call, we have a retail dispensary in Northern California and Oakland. We have an on-site cultivation, about 130, 135 lights there. That was one of the facilities that we had to shut down. We should be finished with construction there in about 30 or 45 more days. We'll have that facility lit back up and hit 2019 uh, running again with that wholesale division, which will add to top-line revenue, but more interestingly, for the product that gets pushed through our doors, it will obviously increase gross margin expansion relatively significantly, specifically for our Bay Area facilities. Uh, just south of there, San Leandro, we have a retail facility. That should be opening up in early December. We're getting a, a, a definite date from the city of San Leandro to open that facility in a ribbon cutting. So sometime in early, mid-December, we'll be having our grand opening of that location. Again, hitting 2019, that will add to the top-line revenue as well as the productivity of, uh, of, our, of our asset base going into next year. Uh, Santa Ana, as we've telegraphed previously, 
but we just came out of the last application cycle winning multiple permits in the Southern California Santa Ana jurisdiction. The nice part about Santa Ana in this area of Southern California, south of Los Angeles, there aren't very many jurisdictions that are licensing right now. So the Newport beaches and the Laguna beaches of the world and the Irvines of the world, they have no intent. Matter of fact, many of them have passed moratoriums against opening up retail dispensaries. But Santa Ana is kind of in the middle of all of these tourist destinations is a great outlet to be able to produce product and then add delivery as a mechanism as an adjunct to retail to be able to capture some of the marketplace down here. So we, of course we have an existing dispense, retail dispensary in the Santa Ana marketplace, but we won three additional retail permits on this last cycle. One of those retail permits was a joint venture where the company owes 25% of that. That one we will not be operating. That one we will be selling out the marketplace. We do have some offers on that right now. That goes back to what we discussed during our last call to take it easy on the capital markets. In certain jurisdictions, we're going for more permits than we actually need. That way we can take some of those permits and sell some of those permits into the marketplace because one of our core competencies in the past has been permitting with 100% track record. We wanted to be able to leverage that competency with producing additional capital coming into the company that we could use for build-out rather than having to go back and tap the capital market. So there's a great example. We just closed on a facility that we sold in the Las Vegas marketplace for $6.25 million. So between those two transactions and a couple more that we have coming down the pipeline, we're going to be able to capitalize some of these other more profitable projects that we have without having to go back to the capital market. So we will be keeping two of the retail permits in the Santa Ana marketplace, and we'll be opening up those stores hopefully sometime in Q1, Q2 of next year. That, again, will be adding to the 2019 portfolio as well as the revenue production kicking on sometime in Q2. We'll keep everybody abreast as we go through the construction cycle there. In addition to that, we won multiple sets of cultivation, uh, manufacturing, as well as distribution permits at the two facilities down here. We will be operating one of these satellite locations down here where, we'll, where it will house our retail facilities, our cultivation facilities, our manufacturing and distribution facilities all at one location. At the other facility, the Dyer facility, will likely be leasing out the back to a potential partner who will absorb most of the fees associated with the, uh, the, the lease with the building, and that way we can have the retail storefront and have a cultivation and extraction partner occupying the back gives us access to good product coming out, takes it easy on the CapEx because they'll be contributing to CapEx associated with that larger scale product, and it gives us the ability to produce more product for our wholesale facilities throughout the Southern California marketplace. In addition to that, as many of you know, California being the fifth largest economy in the world, we believe we have a first mover advantage in this marketplace. We're putting most of our energies into, into penetrating this marketplace even further. So from an M&A standpoint and organic growth standpoint, again, we've got multiple applications out there. We're going to be putting in additional applications. The nice part going back to this potential Golden Leaf transaction is they have multiple permit applications in a lot of the jurisdictions that we wanted to go in. So for Nevada, for example, they have multiple applications into the marketplace there, West Hollywood. So we have two shots in Golem in multiple jurisdictions to expand the retail footprint pretty drastically. Most of these applications will be finding out sometime in the realm of late November, early December, depending on the jurisdictions. They keep extending the deadlines, you know, a couple weeks at a time. But I think coming into the year end, most of these jurisdictions are going to want to make some semblance of an announcement. Jumping over to Nevada a little bit. Again, we have our uh, cultivation facility that we have in partnership with New Leaf up in the uh, Reno-Washaw County marketplace. That is fully lit up. 
We're, uh, we're expanding the rooms there right now, adding genetics. We'll be pulling down our first crop in the not-too-distant future. And then in addition to that, our manufacturing facility that's located about 10 minutes away from our cultivation facility, that one we should be getting our licensing sometime in early to mid-December. So again, we'll have the full vertical integration portfolio put together entering the 2019 marketplace. And that doesn't, that's notwithstanding the potential golden leaf products that they're producing there as well as the acquisition that they have of Tahoe Hydroponic, which essentially doubles our cultivation footprint as well as gives significant brand equity and integrity from a developed producer that has great recognition in that marketplace for us. Uh, as I said just a moment ago, we did sell one of our retail dispensaries. It was an underperforming location for us. We had about a million four into that facility. We sold it for $6.25 million. We re redeployed that capital and purchased a building off of uh, Fremont Street, so right on the corner of Fremont and 4th Street, right next to the White Castle Burger of all places. We have a new retail location that we hope to win one of the new permits in the next round to migrate there. We think that will be a far more productive facility. So if you look at that from a trade standpoint, we're able to take that capital in, not have to go back to the capital markets, deploy that into real estate, use that money for the CapEx of the retail facility, and hopefully open up a retail store there that has far more top-line revenue than the existing one that we have. So we're moving some pieces around on the chessboard to better leverage those particular assets for our investors' benefit at the end of the day. So we, again, as I said to you before, we have some additional retail applications into the Nevada marketplace. We should hear late November, early December, as well as Golden Leaf has multiple applications throughout multiple marketplaces in the Nevada as well. Hopefully that broadly expands our cultivation or our retail footprint on the West Coast coming out of those, those permit races. Uh, jumping over to New Jersey, where we have Edible Garden. Again, for those of you that are new to the company, we also have an agricultural segment where we grow regular produce, herbs, green leaf lettuces, bib lettuces, those types of things. We're sold in about 3,000 doors throughout the Midwest, Northeast, as well as California, Marshes, Kroger's, uh, Market Baskets, Stop and Shop most recently. We've got great expansion there. We're starting to really hit our stride. The facility's at maximum capacity right now. As I said to you, we just picked up Stop and Shop and Giant Landover to supply organic leafy greens to their retail outlets. That really shows a level of trust and confidence in our edible garden products and further deepens our relationships by providing access to a greater number of chains retail outlets in those jurisdictions where we're currently embedded. The first orders of Edible Gardens organic leafy greens to both those new customers that I just discussed will be shipped in the fourth quarter of 2018. In addition to that, as many of you know, there's been a lot going on in the cannabis industry in New Jersey. We've put in three vertically integrated applications in North, Central, and South. That would encompass Jersey City, New Brunswick, as well as Atlantic City. Uh, we, they, I think they pushed the, uh, the permit announcements to December, and now I'm hearing maybe early January. So again, as everybody's coming out at midterms and into the end of the year, uh, they've deployed their internal teams to score and process these permits, but they're getting more and more competitive jur jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And what we're seeing now is hundreds and hundreds of applications are coming in almost every time there's a permit opportunity in the U.S., and that puts obviously a tremendous amount of strain on the local governments, and that's why we're seeing some of these timeframes pushed out. So we hope to hear maybe late December, early January on the New Jersey opportunities. We hope to walk out with at least one vertically integrated opportunity there. We'll keep shareholders apprised as those dates swing around. But as it sits right now, latter part of this year, early January for that location, and then for Nevada and West Hollywood, those should be late November, early December. Again, those, need, those, those mile markers are moving around a little bit, 
but we'll come back to shareholders as we get more definitive information coming out of the local governments. At this juncture, I'll now turn the call over to Mike James, Teratech's Chief Financial Officer, to do a little bit of a deeper dive into our financials. Mike. Thank you, Derek, and good afternoon, everyone. I will now provide you with a summary of our third quarter 2018 results. For the more detailed results, please refer to the press release we issued earlier today, which is posted on our website, along with the Form 10-Q filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition, please note that we compile our financials under U.S. GAAP, including our non-operating expenses. For the three months ended September 30, 2018, we generated revenues of $7.08 million compared to $10.12 million for the three months ended September 30, 2017, a decrease of $3.04 million, or 30%. The decrease was primarily due to a $1.77 million decrease in IVEX revenues due to the relocation of our IVEX production facilities to an upgraded facility, which is intended to facilitate an increase in production and enable us to achieve greater distribution throughout California. Product completion is estimated to be in the fourth quarter of 2018. Revenues will we're also impacted by a $550,000 decrease in Nevada's Medifarm dispensary revenues and a $420,000 decrease in Bloom Oakland, resulting from higher California state excise tax effective January 1, 2018, which ne- negatively impacted demand. Our gross profit for the three months ended September 30, 2018, was $1.52 million, compared to a gross profit of $2.33 million for the three months ended September 30, 2017 a decrease of approximately $800,000. Our gross margin percentage for the three months ended September 30, 2018, was 21.5% compared to 23.1% for the three months ended September 30, 2017. The decrease was primarily attributable to the canvas segment as we reported lower revenues related to our fixed overhead costs. Selling general administrative expenses for the three months ended September 30, 2018, were $9.47 million compared to $6.24 million for the three months ended September 30, 2017, an increase of $3.23 million, or 51.9%. The increase was primarily due to a $1.6 million increase in salaries and related payroll taxes due to new hires in the compliance department and the overall headcount increases. A $690,000 increase in stock option expense related to employee bonuses, and a $440,000 increase in rent expense, and a $200,000 increase in other professional fees related to outside consulting consultants implementing new accounting systems. We realized a net operating loss of $7.95 million for the three months ended September 30, 2018, compared to an operating loss of $3.9 million for the three months ended September 30, 2017 an increase of approximately $4.05 million. We incurred a net loss of $13.74 million, or $0.19 cents per share, for the three months ended September 30, 2018, compared to a net loss of $7.79 million, or $0.16 cents per share, for the three months ended September 30, 2017. Management will continue its efforts to lowering operating expenses and increase revenue. We will continue to invest in further expanding our operations a comprehensive marketing campaign with the goal of accelerating the education of potential clients and promoting our name and products. Given the fact that most of the operating expenses are fixed or have a quasi-fixed character, 
We expect that as revenues increase, those expenses as a percentage of revenue will significantly decrease. Now turning to the balance sheet. On September 30th, 2018, we had a cash balance of approximately $3.4 million compared to a cash balance of approximately $5.4 million at December 31st, 2017. We had no net short-term debt as of September 30th, 2018. Long-term debt increased from approximately $6.6 million to approximately $13.8 million during the three months ended September 30th, 2018. Stockholders' equity for the third quarter 2018 amounted to approximately $93 million compared to $76.8 million as of December 31st, 2017. Now I'd like to turn the call back over to Derek for some closing comments. Thank you, Mike. And again, everybody, this is, this is a really exciting time for the industry at large from a political standpoint, from a consumer sentiment standpoint, from a legalization standpoint. RBC Capital Markets came out with a legal cannabis category in the U.S. They said set to grow at 17% compound average growth rate over the next decade to as much as $47 billion in annual sales. As we're seeing the economy grow, we're seeing legislation in favor of decriminalization has also become very popular among constituents. Support for legalization has reached a record high. I don't know if you saw the recent Gallup poll that came out, but 64% of Americans are now in favor of a tax and regulated uh, structures that pertains to cannabis. We're seeing uh, very you know, significant bipartisan support at this side, it's, you know, especially for medical and hemp, but that's a lot of it's carrying over to adult use at this point. We're committed as a management team to advancing the business so that it's ready and able to be a market leader in this booming legal cannabis industry. And again, going back to the Golden Leaf transaction, we're going to be working very aggressively over the next few months to go through due diligence, the regulatory requirements, uh, the auditing, and all the things that we need to do as a management team to put these two pieces together because we think it's a one plus one equals five type scenario at the end of the day. And again, coming out of that, I'd look towards a complete corporate rebranding of the new structure coming out uh, into the marketplace. With that, I'd like to turn the, uh, the call back over to Phil for questions and answers. Phil, I'm assuming we got some questions in. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, first question: Can you explain why revenues were soft for Q3? Yeah, I think I think we just touched on that. I mean, we again we were a pure retailer during Q, Q sorry during Q3. We had none of our cultivation, none of our extraction up, and that was really just a byproduct of the regulatory environment. Uh, the 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 extraction and manufacturing facility was really a byproduct of us wanting to migrate that down south because we have a bigger facility down here. We have the beverage line that we're bringing to the marketplace. We wanted to make sure we had everything under one roof from a manufacturing of concentrates to edibles to consumables to beverages, you name it, especially with this potential golden leaf uh, merger that's taking place. We'll have a lot more product lines that we're used to producing on top of the carts, waxes, concentrates that we already did, and we need to make sure we have the proper facility to be able to do that. The cultivation, on the other hand, we essentially, again, had to shut down those facilities to rebuild and refabricate those to get those up to current regulation. But all those are coming online in the next you know, month or two. In addition to that, we have the new cultivation facility coming online towards the latter part of the year as well. I don't know when the final permitting with the city will happen, but we'll have construction complete coming into year end. Uh, that's another couple hundred lights up uh, just adjacent to our retail dispensary by the Coliseum and by the airport area of Oakland. So that's a whole other infrastructure piece that adds to our wholesale and adds to our margin expansion that we didn't previously happen to have. So not only was it somewhat of an anomaly because, again, we were acting as a pure retailer, but we're coming back for 2019 with all that back online, but actually even stronger because we'll have a larger and more significant footprint from a manufacturing standpoint as well as the cultivation. I think most people know that, you know, this – 
none of these stories for any one of these companies are a quarter over quarter story. These are really 2020, 2021 narratives. Who can build the biggest footprints, get the best brand penetration and set themselves up for success with economies of scale and significant synergies? All right. Uh, next question. How does the Golden Leaf merger affect Paratech's desire to list on the NASDAQ or NYSE? I, that, that doesn't change. I mean, if, if we had the ability to list on an exchange tomorrow, we'd, of course, do that because that would give us potential access to the significant capital markets and institutional investors, all the things that we're seeing these Canadian companies like Canopy and Tilray have access to because they're not embedded in, in, the, in the U.S. where it's federally illegal. So that's less of a byproduct of having size or scale. That's more of a byproduct of the federal regulatory environment. So we're hoping, again, you know, Cory Gardner's bill, the state's rights bill, starts to get some attention, makes its way to the floor for a vote. We've heard, again, through multiple sources, that the president is in a position where he would, he would sign something like that. And I believe it was also publicly assured to Cory Gardner, who's come public with that statement as well. So we hope that comes to fruition because we think that's the most responsible approach to legalization is a state's rights approach, and it allows us the flexibility to kind of navigate the certain states we feel like you know, create the best upside for our shareholders, and obviously Nevada, California, Oregon, and other parts of the West Coast is where we're primarily focusing our attention right now. Okay. Uh, next question. With Teratex move to list on the Canadian Securities Exchange, can we expect international expansion? And if so, what countries do you feel would be initial targets? Yeah, thanks for that. So, um, yeah, we, one of the things that we want to do is coming out of this merger is have a cross-listing on the CSE. That gives us access to the U.S. capital markets. It will also give us access to the Canadian capital markets, which at times are a little bit healthier from a size and structure standpoint than what we're seeing here. So we just ultimately come out, when I say it's a one plus one equals five type scenario, we come out with better access to capital. We come out with a stronger shareholder base. We save significant, you know, capital, CapEx and OpEx. And what I mean by that is they were coming into California. Now they don't have to build a cultivation and extraction facility. That saves 10, 12 million bucks by not having to invest in that because we'll utilize the infrastructure that we have and the, the projects that we're building to fulfill the demand of all of our wholesale products. Same thing in the Nevada marketplace. We likely don't have to expand our cultivation footprint there now with the picking up a potential picking up of Tahoe hydroponics. Great synergy, great complement that saves millions of dollars to the company from a CapEx standpoint, which means we don't have to go back to the capital markets from that. So we, we, we need vertically integrated facilities in each jurisdiction that we're in but if we were two separate companies, we would need two sets of those vertically integrated. So it's not rocket science at the end of the day to see just from a CapEx standpoint the amount of cost savings that's going to take place. And then from an OpEx standpoint, from a buying power standpoint, as you see, most of these West Coast brands are in multiple markets now. So you're seeing California brands in Oregon, in Nevada, Nevada brands in California. That gives us size and scope from a buying power standpoint. If we can start shaving off 5 and 10% on the products that we're buying, that really adds to gross margin. So we're working you know, to put these pieces together to save not only from a CapEx standpoint, from an OpEx standpoint as well, from an ongoing standpoint, one audit, one set of auditors. We cut down on legal, that type of thing. So huge cost savings just from a peripheral standpoint, from an operating standpoint for the company. But again, they come with that piece that we didn't have. They come with the Canadian producer, which gives us the ability to produce our products and distribute those products throughout the Canadian marketplace. But even more importantly, like you just asked, it gives us the ability to push our brands out to the European market. So we're not really ready at this juncture because, again, we're still going through all the throws of putting the merger together and going through due diligence. 
we'll work on strategy towards you know the latter part uh, of this process. But we obviously have a huge appetite, and I know William and his team have a huge appetite to start producing brands for the European markets. Just because, again, going back to what I said previously, there's a tremendous appetite for for U.S. brands, specifically California brands, in these global markets, and we want to make sure we we're one of the people that are feeding those global markets with those brands out of the gate. Perfect. Uh, next question is: Management still making headway in New Jersey? Uh, do we have a time frame as to when we can see some progress there? Yeah, and I, I, I said earlier. You know, we we I think they had publicly stated sometime in early mid December, but now I'm hearing internally that's probably going to be uh, early January. So I, I guess at this point I'd be surprised if we heard anything in uh, in December. And I think the likelihood and probability is we're going to hear about those permit applications rolling into into January. I'm also hearing they might up the amount of permits that they're essentially going to issue out of the gate, which will give us a, a better chance at uh, securing one of these permits in one of these jurisdictions. So we'll keep everybody apprised of that. And, and most of these jurisdictions put out public commentary on their uh, cannabis portals, uh, the government portal, so people can pay attention to those for more information as well. Uh, next question, can you provide an update on the cannabis-infused beverage line? Yeah, we're working to get that out in Q1 of next year, and that was one of the reasons, again, why we needed to kind of, you know, migrate the facility from Northern California down to Southern California with some of this uh, uh, square footage that we uh, that we procured down in the Santa Ana marketplace. So ultimately, we want Santa Ana to become our manufacturing hub, uh, as well as, you know, an existing retail hub for us and migrating our corporate offices over there. So that's going to put us in a position to be able to push multiple products and multiple brands out through the California marketplace. We can also utilize our distribution permit up in Northern California to migrate product up there for dissemination through other retailers through Northern California through one central hub as well. So we're ultimately centralizing our manufacturing operations in Southern California so we can have, you know, adherence to rules, regulations, compliance, SOPs, have consistency of products and protocols uh, at the end of the day and not have something that's, uh, you know, operating far away where we have a limited amount of oversight. So that's really the intention of doing this down here. But the beverage line is, uh, is going to be a significant amount of attention for us. And I think the first product we're going to be coming to line with is this, you know, sparkling uh, beverage uh, kind of, you know, champagne. We're not calling it champagne, obviously, but uh, that type of infused product. Then on the backbone of that, we'll do an infused margarita mix and infused uh, lemonade and that type of thing. So we'll be coming out with a suite of products. The branding on it looks remarkable. The mock-ups look outstanding. And then we're at that point right now where we're configuring the, uh, the bottling lines and that type of thing and starting to work with the city down here to get those, uh, those facilities up and running as soon as possible. Okay, uh, next question. Can you provide an update on the Van Breed lawsuit? Uh, I mean, there's nothing more than that's what's listed in the queue there. You know, <laughs> lawsuits are a huge waiting game, so... Um, I think we're at the point right now where some of the lawsuits have been consolidated and that type of thing, and so we're just waiting for discovery. We're waiting to, to open up the ability to be able to depose them. We feel very confident with our positioning here at the end of the day, and uh, we're going to run this uh, full course uh, from start to finish. So we'll, of course, you know, update our disclosures as uh, things change, but nothing's that much different than what's in our current legal disclosures right now. Okay. Uh, can you explain management's decision to invest in hydrofarms? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a twofold uh, decision from us uh, from a structural standpoint. Number one, from a capital markets perspective, uh, I, I've known HydroFarm for a long time. And with uh, Sunlight's uh, acquisition uh, and, and consolidation, uh, they're the only true independent supplier of wholesale products out there. And so 
They're, uh, they're doing a tremendous amount of revenue. They've been around for a long, long time. We use and buy those products and have for a long, long time. So the valuation made a tremendous amount of sense considering what valuations are in the marketplace for companies that are on the periphery of cannabis right now. So the investment from a pure investment standpoint made a tremendous amount of sense. And the hope is that we can turn that $5 million into something far greater than $5 million and redeploy that capital back into our operations without having to go back to the capital markets. The nice part about you know, having the position and longevity that we've had in the marketplace, we see a lot of deals to invest in. So we want to make sure we're, we're venture-minded and doing some partnerships that are accretive to us internally just from a, from a capital markets perspective. But going even further than that, from a CapEx-OpEx standpoint, we just took down a large lighting order from HydroFarm uh, to, to outfit one of our new facilities and saved a tremendous amount of cost because of the relationship there. So because we're in CapEx mode, that's going to pay us dividends back just from a savings standpoint. But then from an operating standpoint, we buy nutrients, we buy new bulbs, we buy all sorts of new systems, we upgrade, we refurbish. All of those things mean buying goods and materials. And now we have a trading partner. We have a trading partner that we're heavily embedded with that's going to save us a, a significant amount of capital from a CapEx OpEx standpoint going forward. One of our focuses, obviously, is operating margin, and this investment is going to make us more competitive from that standpoint. But again, just from a pure capital market standpoint, we think it was a good opportunity to, from an investment standpoint, to turn that five into something greater than five. Okay, next question is a three-part question. Um, what type of cost savings and revenue opportunities do you foresee if slash when the Golden Leaf deal goes through? Would Bloom and Chalice brands exist in the same market? And beyond the roles of Derek and William, what does the C-suite look like? Uh, C-suite's relatively remaining the same. Uh, you know, I'm maintaining my position. Mike Nahouse is chief operating officer. Mike James is chief financial officer. Jane, uh, William will come in as president. Uh, as far as the brands are concerned, that's going to be kind of delving into the strategy, the broader macro strategy of the potential combination. That will be dealt with a little bit downstream. Right now, again, we're focusing on due diligence and the regulatory side of the equation. Um, so we'll, we'll come back and, you know, like I said, freshen up the corporate rebranding, but also at the same time start to establish which is the dominant retail brand, what are the whole suite of wholesale brands we want to bring out to the market. But brands aside for a second, one thing that they're bringing to the table are products that we don't sell. One thing that we're bringing to the table is products that they don't sell. We don't do fruit juice. They don't do beverages. We put a lot of time, effort, and energy into developing the beverage line. They put a lot of effort and energy and capital behind the fruit juice and the tinctures. We're going to have the ability to cross-sell in multiple marketplaces. That should all mean significantly more revenue for the combined entities at the end of the day from that standpoint. The real synergies from a cost standpoint are what I said earlier, the fact that they don't have to come down in this jurisdiction, in the Nevada jurisdiction, and build multiple vertically integrated facilities because we will have those vertically integrated facilities. In the Oregon marketplace where we wanted to move into next, we now don't have to go in there and build out retail, nor do we have to go in there and build out vertically integrated facilities. So the combination of both companies, just from a CapEx standpoint, is going to save millions of dollars. But then from an OpEx standpoint, we're going to have a tremendous amount of synergies and, and, and symbiotic-type relationships there as well. Again, we don't need two sets of auditors. Audit costs are off the charts. You know, these companies spend, you know, a quarter, half, you know, three-quarters of a million dollars, depending on their size and complexity, to accomplish SOX audits and the financial audits. So, um, you know, that in and of itself, the legal bills, all those types of things are going to be great synergies from, a, from, a, from an OPEX standpoint. And then from an access to the capital markets, we think because of the size, scope, and the cost savings of the combined entities, 
the access to capital because we're going to have the ability to access the Canadian markets as well as the U.S. markets and leverage those against each other at times, we should have healthier financings from a company standpoint for, for build-outs and, and for ongoing operations. And then again, it just gives us the critical mass that we need to go out and continue to focus on combined M&A. So we've got a tremendous amount of retail footprint right now. And even though I think the wholesale brands are really where the long-term value is, retail to me is going to be where most of the energy is over the next several years because it's really the only environment that socializes cannabis with the consumer at the end of the day. It's, it's like liquor stores. If it, if it, imagine if liquor were only served and only sold in liquor stores. You couldn't get it at stadiums, on the airplanes, at movie theaters, only in liquor stores. And that's what the case is for cannabis right now. So there's a tremendous amount of power for having retail shelf space for your own brands as well as you creating barriers to entry for other brands. And because of that pathway, we see a lot of potential synergies and opportunities to combine post-consolidation of these two companies with other companies that are occupying the wholesale space and doing so very successfully. So William is completely aligned with our, our team in terms of getting this deal done, creating the effective synergies, and to start looking out in the marketplace again of what other opportunities we can bring in-house from an M&A standpoint that shore up our wholesale brand penetration into the key markets that we're focusing on. Okay. Uh, next question, is the regulatory environment stable in California? I mean, it's definitely stable. It's just been frustrating, um, you know, as candid as possible. Uh, and the frustrations were what I said they were. They were anomalies of having to shut your facilities down to rebuild those up to different regula- regulatory codes. It was, it was having to dispose of product that didn't meet the current testing parameters or having to bargain basement sale those going into those deadlines. So. The regulation really had an effect on operations. It almost dictated operations during Q1, Q2, and Q3 this year. But again, the nice part about the the bureaus right now, especially on the retail side, is they really are listening to the industry and they're adopting changes and and looking at how they can streamline efficiencies to not be so kind of, you know, headwindy to the operators in the space. And again, the most important thing that I think that they can do is cracking down on the gray and black markets and making sure that unlicensed producers aren't able to sell their products out to consumers. And then more proactively, we're trying to organize the industry in California for a buy legal type campaign to really educate consumers the same way the produce industry has with organics, or, 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 the, or I should say the, the retail industry has with organics. Why are you paying more? You're paying more for your own personal health. Well, if you think, you know, food has a huge effect there, imagine something that's combustible in nature. So we think consumers really need to be educated that, yeah, you may be saving 10% buying on, you know, an un- from an unlicensed delivery service or an unlicensed dispensary, but are you smoking, you know, aflatoxins? Are you smoking contaminants? Are you ingesting products that may have, you know, affect your immune system in some capacity? So we really need to be proactive as an industry to educate the consumer base but also the regulatory body and regulatory authorities need to put more emphasis and time and energy into cracking down on that segment of the industry because they're not garnering any tax benefit. And I think they're beginning to understand that. So it's getting healthier, and I think next year we'll get even more healthy from an operational standpoint. But, again, it's just one of the growing pains. We wanted to play in the fifth largest economy. We think there's a tremendous amount of upside in the state. But, again, we had to go through the growing pains, as most companies have in the space, 
uh, in California for, for 2018. But we, again, we think there'll be a little bit clearer runway coming into 19, and especially coming into 2020. So our focus and our emphasis is to really build out our California footprint, adding stores in the Bay Area, adding retail throughout Los Angeles, all the way down to San Diego through organic permit, permit uh, uh, applications as well as uh, M&A and uh, uh, organic uh, uh, acquisitions out in the marketplace as well. Okay. Uh, what is the timeline to a CSE listing, and does the company have to make any changes in order to qualify? Uh, we are we're working towards having that that dual listing done in in combination with closing the transaction. So uh, anything more than that, we're really at the beginning stages of putting together all the due diligence, the regulatory framework, and that type of thing. So a little little premature to 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 to, to timeline everything from that standpoint. But our goal and objective is to have that dual listing at time of closing the combined company as well as the rebranding done. And uh, the last question, uh, can you talk about the synergies between Terratech and Golden Leaf that made this deal so attractive? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think we jumped in that, you know, in, in multiple parts of the call, the call. The big piece was really, again, just the cultural side of the equation between their team and our team. The potential integrations, I think, going to be relatively smooth. Uh, their head, from a strategy standpoint, is very much in line with, with where, where we're at. We think the markets that we're all in are the most important markets on a go-forward standpoint. And then the economic synergies are what I said earlier, the CapEx and OpEx, OpEx savings, the, the savings on peripheral service providers, the reduction in costs associated with uh, pooling our buying efforts in multiple marketplaces, uh, and mo again, most significantly, the savings in CapEx costs of not having to build out multiple facilities to service two separate companies. And so our, our, our hope and objective is, you know, off the backbone of our combination is to, again, get out there and get heavily focused on major M&A, specifically in the wholesale division for people that have great wholesale branded products with great distribution penetration to the marketplaces that we're in right now. So the synergies are very robust, and we're going to identify a lot more of those synergies. And as we get through definitive docs and start to you know, forecast and do that type of thing, we'll come back into the marketplace and really begin to outline the cost savings, the efficiencies, the potential for top-line revenue increases. And then again, I think uh, shareholders and prospective investors will have an opportunity to see coming out of this permitting season that we're going through right now how successful we are to add to the existing 41 licenses that the combined companies hold right now. So our hope is that we've got a dominant position in, in, you know, combined company will have a dominant position in the West Coast, but coming out of this permitting season, we hope to even secure that dominance uh, even more so with additional retail cultivation and extraction footprint in the key markets that, uh, that are most important to us. Okay, that's it for questions. That's it. All right. Well, again, thank you, shareholders. We normally have four or 500 people on these calls. I appreciate you taking the time. I hope we explained kind of the anomaly for Q3 as it ties back to the California regulatory environment. We're extremely committed to continuing to give updates on the synergies between the Golden Leaf team transaction and the Golden Leaf merger with Terratech. Uh, on the behalf of the board of directors, the officers, all of our employees, thank you for taking the time. I also want to take this moment to Thank our auditors, Markham. This was our first quarter with Markham. We had a very smooth uh, review process. And I also want to thank our auditing team who works tirelessly coming up into these quarterly reviews and more specifically into the upcoming annual audits. With that, uh, we'll look forward to discussing updates with you on an ongoing basis, and uh, take care.